Welcome back to What Would Mozart Do? Until now, I have mainly spoken to musicians who have transferred their skills from music to other fields. Today, I invited El Luna from San Francisco to have a chat. El is a painter, designer and author. She has been involved in various collaborations, such as the Boulogne Project, a textile venture where designers and master batik artists in Bali collaborate. She has previously worked as a designer at IDEO and with startups, including Mailbox, Medium, Uber and Airbnb. Elle is the author of The Crossroads of Should and Must, as well as Your Story is Your Power, Free Your Feminine Voice. Today, Elle and I doodle with words, talking about inspiration, dreams and what to do with them, and how to commit to the little voice inside. Hello, Al. Thank you so much for joining me. Mm, thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here today. It's just lovely to, to at last meet you. We've met in a weird way in the sense that I've read your book, and well, one of your books, and it's just wonderful to at last connect with you and, and chat so just for the listeners to introduce yourself, may I ask that you just tell a little bit about yourself, uh, where you are, where you're from, and how you came to be where you are now. Oh, wow. How much time do we have? <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. Well, I am sitting on a boat. I live on a boat in the middle of the San Francisco Bay. And I'm looking out the window right now and the seagulls are just waking up and they do this great dance in the morning at sunrise. And this is the first morning I've seen the sunrise in a few weeks. Oh, wow. Fires. And uh, we have this beautiful blue sky, which we haven't seen. So this is a really good day for us to be talking. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> Lots of inspiration going on around you. And clean air. Anyway, so I'm in Northern California. I live just north of the Golden Gate Bridge in a really cute little community of houseboats. And before that, I lived in the city. And I guess what got me here to chatting with you is, well, we'll talk about my dream, but I, I had a pivotal dream. Let's just say that. So we'll come up to that point. But before that, um, I went to the Art Institute of Chicago. And I was trained as a visual communication designer. I left art school with a, with a master's in fine arts and had no idea how I was going to pay my rent and <laughs> if I was going to be able to afford health insurance. And I decided to go into design and I, I joined a marvelous design consultancy. There's actually an office there in London called IDEO. Mm-hmm. I was at IDEO for about five years doing all kinds of incredible projects, basically taking my fine art work, but applying it towards these big organizations and businesses. And then after that, I, I was in San Francisco and there were all of these little startups, you know, in our backyard, these like teams of three, four, five people. One of them was called Uber Cab. Oh, um, just a, just a little idea. And then there was this other team um, that had this website called airbedandbreakfast.com, <laughs> Airbnb. And yeah. I thought, why are we doing these big projects for these big corporations? And what if we were to take our methodologies and, and, and work with these startups who are in our backyard? 
So I left IDEO and I started doing freelance design work for a bunch of startups. And I ended up joining one called Mailbox. Mm-hmm. So I, I was basically in the heart of Silicon Valley building apps and websites and all kinds of wonderful pieces of technology to help people live better lives. Mm-hmm. And then I had a dream, but we'll stop it there. Aha. Uh-huh. Well, I think just continue this. I, I love the, the <laughs> way that you just tell the story. And I mean, I've read the book, so I, I think I know where you're going with this. But yeah, actually, I'm, I'm going to interrupt you there for a moment, actually. Up until the dream, which skills would you say that you've learned in grad school you've transferred to your work with the startups, etc., all your work before the dream? Mm-hmm. I mean, so many of them. My understanding of story, I mean, I, I guess the term I would use is storytelling. And, and I'll take Mailbox, for example. That was a startup that we built from an idea on a post-it note. Mm-hmm. And we had to build every single component of it. We had to figure out the name. We had to figure out the, all of the, the colors. We had to look, figure out the way that the product, it, it was the very first mobile first email client. Yeah. All of these other, you know, emails had been designed first for the computer and then kind of crammed into these little supercomputers in our pockets. And we said, what if we were to design an email experience that was intentionally designed for the phone and took advantage of the fact that you could swipe things. So we had your email was swipeable. That was the first swipeable email. Now, of course, that's in all of our phones, but color, uh, how you walk somebody through an experience, how you tell a story about why they should even care, a story of trust, why you should give us the keys to your email, the keys to your kingdom, right? Privacy, Mm -hmm. Um, the website itself. Who are we? You know, we're 10 people down in Palo Alto in in a tiny room cranking out this really big product. I think my love for storytelling it was very translatable into startups in that um, so much of it was about tapping into the emotional layer of, you know, when you're, when you're building a, a startup, so much of it is about speed and the, en- the engineers were just brilliant. You know, you can't lose the single email. Everything has to be lightning fast and everything has to be there immediately. And so much of it is about the specs and the and the, the details of the data and, and the, the logistics of that. But what people are really, really looking for is something that actually isn't identified with specs. It's more about value systems and more ephemeral systems about how something might make them feel. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, what does it say about me that I'm able to get through all of my email every day? I can get to inbox zero. So... I think having training in the arts is is invaluable for how how do you connect to emotion and how do you bring along the parts of the experience that can be felt but maybe not necessarily seen and having a sensitivity towards that especially in an industry where things need to be built and launched yesterday I think the artist def- or the artist sensibility certainly has a role a very important role to play and I wish I wish there were artists inside of all of the startups taking care of our more sensitive parts. <laughs> yeah. And I, and I think you, you mentioning that things need to be developed and built 
yesterday, to be ready yesterday. I think with each year as things are developing, it that yesterday becomes the day before yesterday, you know, or a week ago. It's just the pressure becomes more and more, wouldn't you say? Yes. And this is a much larger conversation around our culture of productivity, especially here in the West and how much we value productivity and the question of, is that really good for us? Mm -hmm. uh, I heard a marvelous thing. You'll love this. Just yesterday, a friend of mine said that busy is the new stupid. (laughs) My fitness trainer, she said to me that sitting is the new smoking. Okay. I think there's something about this culture of sitting and working and being busy that like we're starting to pick up on the fact that like it's not necessarily good for our bodies, for our energy levels, for our, our mental, our spirits to be just so unbelievably busy. And so how might we how might we participate in a rapidly evolving and changing economy? And a culture that prizes productivity, but not really not get lost in that tidal wave because it will take us out. Yeah, and I I think that is the only way that we can stand still and take stock. Our bodies will will build to do that in dreams, won't they? Mm. And I think this would then be a perfect juncture for you to tell the listeners about the dream that you had. Okay, well, I guess before I say that, yeah. um, you dream? Do I dream? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Very vividly sometimes, sometimes very scarily, but I for certain do dream. Yes. In, in all the colors. <laughs> yes. Well, I guess some people dream in black and white. Some people dream in color. Mm-hmm. Some people hear things. Some people don't hear things. Do you remember your dreams? And do you, if you do, do you have any tips or tricks on how you remember your dreams? I'm always trying to collect good dream remembering tips. Well, I, if it was a good dream, for instance, if it was an interesting plot of a story or a beautiful scenario or a picture, if you like, scene, I would write that down in as much detail as possible. When it's a bad dream, which I find I, I often, when I get stressed or when things are really stacking up, I find actually that in those dreams, they, they can sometimes turn a little bit dark or that something happens to people that are very close to me. And I often wake up from those, sometimes not sure whether it was true or a dream. And for me to, on the one hand, deal with that is when I'm sure it was just a dream, is to tell myself that. I mean, there are times, for instance, an example would be that I would dream that something's happened to my sister and we are extremely close. And I would immediately message her and say, how are things? Are you okay? (laughs) And she by now knows that sometimes these dreams happen. What about yourself? What do you do? Yeah, I... Similarly, I have a spectrum of dreams. Some of them are more complex and layered. Some of them are more just crystal clear. Mm-hmm. And one of the tricks that consistently has worked well for me over the years is just to grab my phone. Mm-hmm. And, you know, while I'm still kind of in the dream, to talk into my voice recorder. 
and to just kind of walk through the dream again, like with my eyes still closed. This, if you have a spouse or somebody um, next to you, this can be a complicated gesture yeah, arrangement. <laughs> if you've if you've outlined it ahead of time, it can be all right. So um, that's a good one because then I'm still kind of in it, and I really like when I'm still sort of in the, you know, before I've even moved a muscle, like even just moving and getting up or getting a glass of water or anything will break the, the, the spell. Yeah. So okay. sort of staying in it, trying not to move and just hitting record, closing my eyes and walking through the dream again in the present tense. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I'm standing in the front of the boat and the stars are are like mustard seeds and the, the, and really looking at the stars. And there's a way you can move the camera kind of in and out and around. Yes. And sometimes I'll try to become different objects and look at myself, or I'll try to become different people because I prescribe to the belief that every single object and person within the dream is a representation of the dreamer. Mm-hmm. So the the stars are me, the the plant is me. The boat that I'm standing on is holding me and it is also me. So that can be fun. Uh, I also hear that people say a little piece of dark chocolate right before you go to sleep can help activate the brain with some glucose yeah. and get you into some pretty nice dream cycles. But I think that's just a good excuse to eat some great chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I th- <laughs> that's exciting. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody go eat some chocolate. Yeah. <laughs> so I am a big dreamer, but I haven't always been. I didn't remember mm-hmm. my dream for a long time. And then in uh, about 2012, I started really dreaming again for mm-hmm. about the first time after a decade. And I started having a recurring dream. And the dream was really simple. Do you want to hear it? Yes, please. Okay. In the dream, I walk inside of a, a large warehouse and it's a large white room and it has warehouse windows running down one side of the room and concrete floors, really tall walls. Uh, it's all white. And um, in the dream, I go and I sit down on the floor in the middle of this beautiful white room and I am filled with an unbelievable sense of fulfillment and peace and calm. And I sit on the floor of this space and that was my dream. Right. And what did you do about it? <laughs> After you've wow. spoken it, relived it into your phone. <laughs> simple dream with some not so simple consequences. Of course. Well, at first, I just was kind of enchanted. Mm-hmm. You know how when you wake up from a dream and you're, it's sort of like the dream has stopped, but you're still kind of experiencing the dream in your body. Like maybe you still feel li- the lingering effects of mm-hmm. wherever you were. It's sort of like the dream world leaks into the waking world. And I really came to value that leaking because I could sort of I could put the dream in my pocket and carry it around with me and kind of the way a really beautiful song makes you feel or a great poem, you can, you can just sort of put it in your pocket and then return to it throughout the day, remembering it's there, like, oh yeah, that, and, and go back into that, again, more nonverbal place, which is just a, a body 
location. And I kept doing that. And I found that there was something about the dream that, that I longed for. There was something about the peace and the, the quiet of that dream that was that I just, I longed for so deeply, I couldn't stop thinking about it. So I told a friend about this dream and she asked me the most ridiculous question. She said, have you ever thought about looking for this dream in real life? <laughs> and I mean, I, I thought that was just diabolical. What do you mean? Like, like actually go look for it? And she said, yeah, you know, mm-hmm. maybe find, maybe this room really exists. And are you familiar with the, the story of Cinderella? Yes, yes. How she goes to the ball, right? And she's the fairy goddess mother has made her a dress and given her these fabulous glass slippers. And But if she doesn't get home from the ball, by, by midnight, she'll turn into a, a pumpkin mm-hmm. and you know everything will begin to vanish. And she meets the prince and she's there and she's dancing. and But then the clock strikes midnight and she has to leave and everything begins to vanish, right? The dress, yeah. poof, she's going back to her regular life. Mm-hmm. It's sort of like the dream is fading, right? She's in the dream. Now she's going back to being, you know, a housekeeper for her stepsisters. But what is left behind at the ball is the glass slipper. Mm-hmm. And even though so much of the dream disappears, there is something real and it's that glass slipper and the prince picks it up and he goes to look for her throughout all of the, the land, right? Looking for the, the woman whose foot fits in the glass slipper. And I think there's something about the dream that my friend Susie was picking up on that something about the dream persists and something might actually transcend the dream realm. Mm -hmm. I realize we're, you know, getting into like quantum possibilities here, but I think she was right because I started to go and look for this room and um, I went onto Craigslist and I started to look you know, really kind of at first feeling like this was an absurd task. And then I just kept looking and I kept looking. And one day I saw on Craigslist the white room from my dream. It was a warehouse for rent. It was in San Francisco's dog patch district. Mm-hmm. And there was an open house the next day. Of course, I yeah. went to the open house. I felt like Cinderella, you know, going to try on the glass slipper and the shoe fit. I walked in, I gave my application to the rental lady and I left and I got the apartment and moved in two weeks later. And on my very, my very first night in this white room, I, I had the key. I walked down this long hallway and it was so trippy. It was so trippy. I had been dreaming about this room and now I was here and I opened up the door and I walked inside and there was some part of me that was like, of course I'm here. Yeah. Of course, right? Like I I was experiencing like a future memory or something and now I'm here. And I sat down on the floor, you know, kind of reenacting my dream. And I and I waited for the, you know, the fulfillment and the peace and the calm to arrive, but that didn't happen. Instead, I just started kind of panicking like what have I done? Why am I living in a giant dirty warehouse like what is this all about it's like the moment that um when somebody says be careful what you wish for and here it came came true as like well what now what do i do with this (laughs) that's right and i you know 
I just sort of started to panic and all my practical brain came online, you know, how is your furniture going to fit in here? And, you know, all of the kind of everyday concerns. And so I, I don't know, I just, I felt a little frustrated and also a little annoyed. I was agitated. And that's always a good sign when you feel agitated. It usually means you're kind of on the edge of yourself. And so I, I just decided to ask the room why was I here? Why had this dream happened to me? And I said out loud, I think it's important to say things out loud when you really want an answer. And so I said, why am I here? And as clear as day, the room replied and the room said, it's time to paint. Mm-hmm. And the moment I heard it, I thought, yeah, it's time. It's time to paint. And I had painted all the time as a kid. I painted all through undergrad, all through graduate school, I have a master's in fine arts, you know, but here I was off just kind of running a different race and doing mm-hmm. something a little different. And there was some, I think, part of part of me that really wanted me back, mm-hmm. really wanted me to return to my craft and to the, the heart of how and why I made things. So coming back to the startups, you you weren't doing any of this creativity, your painting, etc., then even as a hobby during the work that you've done with the startups? I was definitely not painting or doing any of my, you know, just traditional practice on nights or weekends because there wasn't really nights or weekends. Mm-hmm. But I so much of what I was doing was creative. You know, I'm I'm reminded of one of my heroes, uh, Ray Eames from the, the Eames studio. She, you know, she was a painter and a marvelous painter. And when she stopped painting and started doing more industrial design and work within within her studio with her husband, people said, you know, have you given up painting? And she said, you know, I never gave up painting. I just changed my palette. Yeah. <laughs> and I sort of felt that way with what I was doing with design, that I hadn't given up my fine art practice. I had just changed my palette. And there was some part of my fine arts practice that really wanted my attention at that particular moment. Mm-hmm. And I, I suppose it's the dream was then the opportunity of you actually responding to the dream and searching for this white room. Is you getting back in touch with your original palette? I think so. And have you since combined the old and the new palettes? In all kinds of marvelous, delicious ways. Yeah. Uh, Tell me about it. Well, I guess, so that was in October of 2012, and now it's almost October of 2020. So that was eight years ago. And it's gotten less dramatic since then, which has been really nice. Things are, Mm -hmm. things there's a lot more balance, which is nice. But one thing that has never really flipped back is that my studio practice is is my anchor. Mm -hmm. My studio practice is the center point from which everything else springs. So one of the things that it took me a while to understand was that my studio practice costs money. (laughs) (laughs) It's not free. And I think especially when you're, you know, looking at, expenses and you know really trying to make sure you can cover the rent and 
cover health insurance and live in a safe neighborhood and maybe save up and buy a car, all of these really great expenses. Mm-hmm. And in uh, between, maybe eat a meal. And maybe go out for a delicious <laughs> pizza every now and then. That's right. Yep. I think it's hard to justify spending money on a studio space. Mm-hmm. Spending money on, you know, buying the brushes you need or, you know, really upgrading. Like I, one of my friends is a marvelous violin player and he's really wanted to get some really nice tools for his at-home studio, especially at the beginning of COVID. Mm-hmm. Wanted to get some tools to play with and work with, with his studio practice at home. But he thought, you know, how can I justify these expenses when my you know concert schedule has been canceled until 2021 maybe later yeah and he i think he really understood that it was important to feed his creativity and he went he and he did buy you know the looping pedal and he did great <laughs> a great microphone and he he did it all and he's been making music nonstop but i think there is a little bit of a hurdle i had to jump through which is like my my studio practice might not make me money. It might actually cost me money. Mm-hmm. And that, that took me a moment to wrap my head around. But I, I think also as important as that realization is and as difficult that m- sometimes might be to maintain that, I think it's important to keep in touch with one's white room to f- really feed the rest of your career and your creativity from that and let the other points connect to that center point, don't you think? Yeah, my, my friend Gentry has this wonderful analogy. Of, he, he, he does it best in person, so you'll have to just imagine this. But imagine both of your feet, you're standing up and you have, you're looking at your feet. And he, he uses this analogy to talk about startups, but I'm going to use it to talk about kind of balancing your studio practice and your career. It's almost like your left foot is your studio practice and keeping that foot firmly planted on the ground. And your right foot is free to pivot and to move around in a circular motion or you know maybe you stretch all the way out and do the splits and then you yes. come all the way back but your left foot never moves. Mm-hmm. Left foot always stays firmly planted. Otherwise your left foot's moving and you take a step and then your right foot's moving over here and then your left foot's moving over there. And then suddenly you're, you know, on the other side of the football field and you're, you know, the heart of your practice is way over there at the other side, at the other end. Mm-hmm. So I really like that visual for, you know, how, how do you identify what your studio practice is? You know, for me, it definitely is having some sort of a, a small space that's just mine. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I don't, I no longer have the actual white room that right. place because now I live, you know, up here up north. But I do have a small studio practice, a studio space that I maintain. And over the years, sometimes I've, I've shared that space with other artists or had it by myself. But a studio practice also might be, you know, an hour in the morning of carving out time for yourself to, to just be with yourself away from your children or, you know, if, if so long as you're not needed to be helpful. Yeah. <laughs> if there's some time, you know, maybe before the kids get up or carving out a half hour in the morning 
but really, really protecting that space and that time because a studio doesn't have to be, or a practice doesn't have to be a physical space. Mm -hmm. It also is psychological space. And just because I go to my physical space doesn't mean I'm actually even going to practice if I don't also cordon off that space in my mind. Mm -hmm. I think the reason that so many of us don't connect to our white rooms or to our, what I call our must is because we're busy. And we're addicted to being busy and our culture values productivity. So if you really want to get in touch with your own white room or with this space, I I do think it's a combination of a physical space that's just yours and hopefully not like the, you know, the dining room table, which is going to be used by everybody. Hopefully it's a, a space, you know, it might even just be a corner of the living room you know, there's like a little rug and like on that rug are all of your tools and that's just for you, but some physical space that feels sacred. And then the second thing, psychological space and really scheduling it and treating it like an appointment with yourself that you can't miss. And you aren't available to braid hair and you aren't available for a scraped knee and you aren't available to cook the potatoes. Like you're really not available and being serious about that. Mm-hmm. When you were talking about the the rug and all your tools being there, we we sort of associate that idea with children, isn't it? They always or a, or a pet. This is where they'll do this, and this is where they'll have their little existence in the big wide world of the rest of the house or, or whatever. And it's interesting that. As we grow up, we lose, often lose that sense of where the rug is, where that little space is. So it's, it's really wonderful for me to hear how the, the analogy with the feet, for instance, as well, how you explain that we, we just have to remind ourselves to either refine that space or if you've found it again, to maintain that. Because I, I think, and thinking about, for instance, when something like the pandemic happens, I mean, a pandemic doesn't happen every day, but we're, we're kind of with it for a while, have been, and it looks like it's going to be for a while still. I think it's important to justify to oneself that you need it. And um, maybe justify is not the right word. It's, it's really, as you say it's a must and you need to create the space for the must words are always interesting to me another guest that i spoke of, spoke to recently but incidentally this was after i'd read your book but obviously before we now met he was talking about in he's a cellist and and how he just rediscovered his practice as a cellist instead of saying you have to do this, this is how you should do it, etc. But in the should words, if you like, he included must. I love the, the fact that you sort of have must on the opposite pole as should. Tell us a bit more about that, if you like. Yeah. Well, I, th- I think I, I got really lost in 2013 in a way that really opened me up. And I decided to 
once we had launched Mailbox out into the world and we had kind of reached our goal, I decided to step away. And because I, I was just really curious about what was happening in my studio practice, mm-hmm. painting around the clock, just the work was, was I don't know, I, I felt like I was sort of along for the ride and the, the work was happening and I just happened to be there. Which I think is so easy to happen, right? It's such a easy pattern to fall into. I yeah, I don't know. I this this whole part is just such a mystery. I wish I understood it better. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, I guess I just I felt really humbled and like this was just sort of happening and like I just I I no longer wanted to fight the river. And so mm-hmm. I just decided to surrender and go with it. So I stepped away from mailbox and I decided to take a sabbatical. I call I highly recommend calling like taking some time off a sabbatical. Mm-hmm. You know, if you just say like I quit my job and I'm not quite sure what I'm gonna do next, everyone panics because the people who love you want you to be safe and taken care of. So I found that, you know, just saying, I'm gonna take a sabbatical, they go, Oh, that sounds lovely. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I did one of those and got lots of head nods. Yeah, because to- it's it kind of sounds like you know what you're doing, right? <laughs> well, whilst inside you might might go, I have no idea what I'm doing, but I just need space. <laughs> it's it's like um, it's a it's a container that that makes sense, you know. Like people go into sabbaticals with questions, yeah. with you know these sort of hypotheses of what would happen if you know. And then at the end of the sabbatical, they have a an exhibition or a show and sort of, you know, share what they did on sabbatical. So that felt like a nice metaphor to live into. And um, indeed, that was what happened. I, I started sabbatical and I did find that I had questions, but I found that one of the things that was happening was that my questions were getting deeper or at a deeper level. Mm-hmm. And so I started doing quite a bit of writing and I eventually posted an essay on Medium called the the crossroads of should and must. And I wrote this post really as a collection of the questions that I was asking. It didn't really have any answers because they're different for each of us, mm-hmm. but it was a framework for how to think about decision-making. So the way I defined it, that should is sort of, you know, what it's like to be a kid and to be told, you know, what we should do, what we should never do, what we should always do, what we should definitely not do. (laughs) A very helpful and healthy way of socialization. And it helps us understand culturally or within our family or religion or community, how we're going to survive here on this terrestrial planet. And as we grow up, it becomes a really natural and um, healthy process to make those shoulds conscious and to begin to question them and to, you know, start to ask, is this, is this really right for me? Is this good for who I'm becoming? Or is this still true for me? Maybe, you know, you should not, you should, you know, one of the, the, the ones that I grew up with in the South, I grew up in, in the Southern part of the United States, which is very conservative and traditional. And the, the one about that they say about children is that they should be seen, but not heard. Yeah. I don't know. If you have that. <laughs> um, um, absolutely. <laughs> 
you know, as you get older, if you're 30 and you're still kind of abiding by this rule that you should be seen but not heard, it might be time to make some re-evaluations of some kind of unconsciously held outdated shoulds. <laughs> and we can't really get to know our shoulds or like kind of the stories that we're telling ourselves about ourselves. We can't really get to know them any other way than by starting to really shine a light on them. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of my work was about trying to figure out how do I start to see these things that are kind of unconsciously running my life? Like the, it's almost like the operating system or the software that I've been running is from 1985 and now it's 2020. Yeah. And maybe it's time for a reboot. And how do you get to know these stories and how do you begin to look at them so then you can decide, are these working for me? And some of them might be working for me. Like you should have health insurance is, is something that is that I believe every I believe everybody should have health insurance. I also believe it should be free and nobody should be denied health care. But it's really good to have health insurance. So that's not really a should. That's something that now is in the must category. So let's talk about must. So must is, there's a very different kind of kinesthetic energy to must. When you're living your life in should, like, you know, you should be seen but not heard. There's sort of like my shoulders curl up. Like there's sort of, you know, when I do something that I know isn't right for me, but Mm -hmm. I do it anyway, I can almost feel my body get smaller. I can feel myself begin to shrink. I don't know. The the word that comes up for me right now is humiliation. Mm -hmm. which is related to shame. There's something about continuing to live in these patterns that we've outgrown that there's a smallness to them. And must is something really different. Must is choiceless. Must is unavoidable. Must is what you love. It's who you are at your deepest, deepest level, which I would call essence. Mm -hmm. And must is the things that you're drawn to it's your dreams, it's your, your longings, your cravings, it might be the colors that you love or the fact that you, you know, love fast sports cars or you just love cars you know, that growl or yeah. you, know, you love the water or you love baking or whatever it might be. And when we choose must, we can also feel that in our bodies and it's one of expansion. Mm-hmm. And it's one where you know it almost feels like suddenly instead of one spine, maybe we have three spines, and there's just this incredible strength and this um, uprightness, and there's a sure-footedness. Mm. And when we choose must, there's this feeling of you know it's like this. It's a very solidifying, integrity-building choice. And you know, I, I originally drew the crossroads of should and must as a as a sign with two directions because they are really different but they're just different ends of the same stick. You know, if you imagine a stick, they really are linked. They're intrinsically linked because you wouldn't have one without the other. And the more you get to know should, actually the closer you get to must. So it's a little bit of a backflip where if you really, really are interested in doing this work, if somebody is listening and thinking, you know, I, I wonder what my shoulds are. What I always say to people is to just get out a piece of paper and write the numbers one through 10 down the left hand side of the paper and and just write down what comes up for you. The first things that you've you heard usually in childhood, 
you know, you should never, you should always, you should know better than to, you should not, you should not, you should not. And go through that list. And, you know, sometimes you might make it specific. Like I ended up writing a list of the shoulds of being a woman. Mm-hmm. And I wrote down all, you know, you should never age, you know, you should not have large hips. You should, you know, uh, you should, you should not rock the boat. You should be a great host. You should want to, you know, I, go on and on and on. And whether you're a woman or a man or African-American or Latina, you know, are there certain shoulds that you feel imprison you? Mm-hmm. And the only way you're going to get to know those is by making them conscious. And I was having a phone call with a friend of mine about this exact topic. He was telling me about this spiritual teacher who I wasn't familiar with. His name was Gurdjieff. And he was a spiritual teacher around the, the turn of the century. And one day he posed a question to his students. Mm-hmm. And he said to his students, if a prisoner wants to be free from prison, what is the first thing that the prisoner needs to know? And one of the students raised their hand and said, well, the prisoner should befriend the guard. <laughs> Another student said, you know, the prisoner should try to find the key, you know, and use it. And Gurdjieff said, um, no, the first thing the prisoner needs to know if they want to escape from prison is that they're in prison. Yeah. Because until they know that, no escape is possible. It doesn't even make sense. So if you want to get to know must, uh, get to know should. Because these are the belief systems and the stories that we tell ourselves that imprison us and that actually alienate us from our quietest, deepest, most essential self. Mm-hmm. So it is very fun to think like, oh, I'm just going to go find my must and I'm going to go just, you know buy the race car or, you know, book the ticket or whatever. But so long as we have these unexamined beliefs, they will continue to show up. And they don't just show up in our creative work. They show up also in our romantic relationships and our work, you know, meetings. And because it's the way that we think about ourselves. Yeah. So it's with us anywhere we go. And Um, because it's everywhere with us, wherever we go, it's both exciting, but also really, really scary to find out what is the should and musts, right? Because each of these will have, if you find your must, it will have a responsibility that you have to adhere to, to keep that alive or to keep true to it. Like your responsibility of your creativity, your painting, it's a must for you. And you have to create the space in which you can can maintain that and keep that alive because it balances the rest of your life. Yeah, that's an I like that. I like that. Yes. It is a commitment. It's a daily it's a choice. Yeah. It's a but, choice. Like, you know, meditating or you know, going for a run. It's yes. a choice. And sometimes when you don't want to go for that run, like Reminding yourself, to remember what you feel like when you've done it. And all those endorphins are just really bursting through your body, you know. And then you go and do it because you want to re- relive that moment every time, isn't it? It's a little bit like you, you um, re-experiencing your dreams, retelling your dreams to yourself, actually, I suppose. Yes, it's definitely... A, a choice. And I think, you know, I'm, I'm 
eight years into sort of living living out this dream and really being a student to this this white room mm-hmm. and I think at, at first there was a lot of euphoria. There was a lot of excitement. There, you know, it's just like, oh my gosh, I'm painting all the time. This is so great. It's like a new romance, right? It's yeah. just like <laughs> butterflies and so fun. And um, <laughs> and then you know you start to get to the layers under the layers, and things start to get peeled back. And with any studio practice, it's really just a mirror of it's yeah, it's just a mirror. So everything is going to come up in that practice. And, you know, my own resistance is going to come up, my, all of the different, my own fear, my own, it's, it's just such a stern, crystal clear mirror of reflecting me back to myself. And so I, I think what, you know, I guess, well, where I am right now is with COVID and with wildfires and with unbelievable chaos happening all around me. My studio practice is one of the ways that I center myself. Mm-hmm. I don't have any lofty goals for my my practice right now. I don't, you know, there's all this at the beginning of COVID, it was like, now's the time to write your masterpiece, you know, write that opera now that you have all this free time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's just another way that we're denying the body because the body is in crisis in the middle of wildfire smoke and people losing homes and people getting sick and all these new strange ways of interacting with one another with masks. Mm -hmm. My orientation during COVID has been that I have to be in the studio for a half hour every day. That's it. Half hour every day, seven days a week. But what I do during that time doesn't matter. Even if I just go and take a nap, that might be, you know, really what my practice needs that day. But there is, it's sort of like, you know, maybe I'll put on my running shoes, but I might just go for a walk mm-hmm. uh, and that's okay. But I think just continuing to show up and continuing to flex that muscle and continuing to let like the, the part of me that really needs me to be there, continuing to let that part of me know, like, I'm here, I'm, yeah. I'm in this, I'm committed, I'm with you. And if anything wants to come through, I'm available to catch it. Yeah. <laughs> Wonderful. To to sort of finish because I I mean I could just I I think we could probably just sit and chat for hours on end can't we? But yes. I I'm curious to know who inspires you one person that inspires you in whatever way. I I mean in any regard. Mm-hmm. One of my dear friends, her name is Becca Piastrelli. She just had a baby. Oh. And I got to have a Zoom call with her last night. There's a big, there's a group of us. We got to have a Zoom call. And I got to watch a woman from a distance do the unimaginable, which is be pregnant during this incredible crisis. And at a time when a mother, you know, we already neglect mothers so deeply, especially, I don't know what it's like in the UK, it's probably a lot better, but here, you know, there's just so little support for women in pregnancy. And on top of that, already, 
you know, not being there, then also her having to go through all this isolation and being alone and Hmm. not being able to get services that are really good for a mother growing a baby. And then for her to give birth, uh, she gave birth two weeks ago to a daughter named Atlas. And it's such a symbol that in the midst of all of this destruction, there's so much life being created. And you know, I, I, Becca inspires me because, um, she has just been like a, a, like a, a life generator over these last nine, now 10 months. And just to watch somebody in such a force of creation, um, and so singularly minded on like, I'm going to focus on life. I'm going to focus on bringing in a new being into this world and you know we the morning after atlas was born our skies here were bright orange you probably saw photos mm-hmm. and thick smoke it was dark all day like the sun never came out that day and it was the eeriest thing and here she is holding this baby and i think the question that so many of us are asking with our work is how does our work how does our work support or speak to the new mother holding her firstborn and looking at dark orange skies and how does our work, maybe not how, but because of course it does. Like how do we continue to make our work to make a more beautiful place for Atlas? Mm -hmm. I think there's something about looking at children right now and just knowing that they're so long as we don't act, so long as we don't put our voices out there, our art out there, our creations out there, we're robbing the children. And so I'm really inspired by children. I'm inspired by all the parents heroically raising them amidst the most unbelievable circumstances. And I think as artists, we have such a powerful and important role to be of service to all these children and to, to really create the world that we want them to be growing up in. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Oh, it's been an absolute, absolute joy to talk mm-hmm. to you. And I, I just want to say that the crossroads of should and must mm-hmm. right next to me. And what I love about it is that sometimes I just page through it because it's so beautifully illustrated by you. And I just want to thank you for this inspiration that you've created in this book and for coming to talk to me and sharing so generously of your thoughts and all the things that, for want of a better phrase, that make you tick. Mm, (laughs) It's so lovely to chat with you. What an honor to get to be here and under these blue skies, no less. It's it's a good omen of things to come. Absolutely. Well, look after yourself and we will be in touch very, very soon again. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of What Would Mozart Do? If you want to hear more, you can find other episodes on your podcast provider. Do you have any questions for future guests or would you want to join in the conversation by being a guest yourself? If so, then write to me at info at whatwouldmozartdo.com.